Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented brings industrial conversations that matter, serving up the most relevant conversations on industrial tech. Our vision is a world where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is industrial AI. Our guest is Professor Jay Lee, the Ohio eminent scholar and the L.W. Scott Alter Chair Professor in Advanced Manufacturing and the Founding Director of the Industrial AI Center at the University of Cincinnati. In this conversation, we talk about how AI does many things, but to be applicable, industry needs it to work every time, which puts on additional constraints on what can be done by when. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and shop floor operators, hosted by futurist Trun Arne Unheim and presented by Tulip. Jay, it's a pleasure to have you here. How are you today? Good. Thank you for inviting me to have a good discussion about industrial AI. Yeah, I think it, it will be a good discussion. Look, Jay, you are such an accomplished person, both in terms of your academics and your industrial credentials. I wanted to quickly just uh, go through sort of where you got to where you are, because I think, especially in your case, it's really relevant to the kinds of findings and the kinds of exploration that you know, you're now doing. You know, you started out as an engineer, you have a dual degree, so you have a master's in industrial management also. And then you had a career in industry, worked at real factories, GM factories, Otis elevators, and even on Sikorsky helicopters. You know, you, you had that background. And then you went on to do a, a bunch of different NSF grants. You got yourself, uh, I don't know, probably before that time, you're a PhD in mechanical engineering from Columbia. Over the rest of your career, and, and you correct me, but you've been doing this mix of really serious industrial work combined with academics, and you've been going a little bit back and forth. Tell me a little bit, what went into your mind as you were entering sort of the manufacturing topics and you, you, know, you started working in factories? Why have you oscillated so much between industry and practice? And tell me really this journey Give me a, a little bit of specifics on you know, what brought you on this journey and, and where you are today. Well, thank you for uh, talking about this career because I cut my eye teeth from the factory early years. And so we learned a lot of fundamental things in early years automation. You know, in 19, early 1980s, it was the U.S. It was a tough time trying to compete with the Japanese automotive industry. So, of course, the big three in Detroit certainly took a big giant step trying to implement a very good manufacturing automation system, right? So I was uh, working for robotic vision system at that time in New York and Hop Park, New York, Long Island. And sorry, later on, I was invested by General Motors. And in the meantime, I was, uh, you know, the study the part-time and uh, in Columbia for my mechanical engineering, uh, doctor of engineering. And but of course, uh, later on, I transferred to George Washington because I, had to make a career move. So I finished my PhD, a doctor of science in George Washington later, right? But the reason we start working on that is because of the shortage of knowledge and make automation work in the factory. So I was working full time, trying to implement the robots automation in the factory. In the meantime, I also found a lack of knowledge, how to make a robot work, not just how to make a robot move. Okay, Ro make a move means you can program, you can do a lot of very fancy motion, but that's not what factory want. Factory real one is a, a, a non-stop working system so it can help people to accomplish the job, right? 
So, so the safety and the certainly the accuracy, precision, uh, maintenance, all the things all combined together become a headache, actually. <laughs> you have to calibrate robot all the time. You have to reprogram them. So eventually I was teaching part-time in Stony Brook also, uh, and uh, later on, how to do the robotic stuff. I think that was like early part of career and most time spent in factory and still in between the part-time study and the full-time working. But later on, I got a chance to move to uh, a Washington DC. I was uh, a, working for US Postal Service headquarters as a program director for automation. In uh, 1988, Post Service uh, un, uh, started a big initiative trying to automate 500 mail facility in the US. There are about 115 Tier, we call it the number one facility, which is like New York, handle 8 million uh, mail pieces per day at that time. You talk about that. Yeah. But most are manual process, right? So packages. So we started developing the AI, pattern recognition, handwritten zip code recognition, robotic puzzle handling, thing like that. So that was the opportunity to attract me, actually, to move away from automotive to a service industry. So it was interesting because you are working with top scientists from different universities, different companies, and to make that work, right? So that was the early stage of the uh, work. Later on, of course, I had a chance to work with the National Science Foundation during Clinton administration, 1991. That gave me opportunity to work with uh, professors in universities, of course. So then by working with them, I was working on a lot of centers, like engineering research centers, and also the uh, industry university cooperative research centers program later on the materials processing manufacturing programs so with the 1990 was a big time for manufacturing in the united states a lot of government money fund the manufacturing research of course and so we see great opportunity like for example early years the older the uh, a, a rapid prototyping started 1990s took about 15 20 years before additive manufacturing came about. So NSF always looked at 20 years ahead, which is a great culture, great you know, intellectual driver. And also they open to public in terms of the knowledge sharing and the talent education. So I think NSF has a good position to provide STEM education, also to allow academics, professors to work with industry as well, not just a purely academic work. So we support both sides. So that work actually allowed me to understand the, what is a real status in research in academics, also how far from real implementation. So 95, I had opportunity to work in Japan, actually. I had opportunity, uh, NSF, we had a, so had a collaboration program with the METI government Japan. So I took uh, the STA fellowship called Science and Technology Fellow, STA, and to work in Japan six months. And to work with the 55 organizations to understand that, like the Toyota, Komatsu, Nissan, Fanuc, etc. So by working with them, then you also understand and what is real technology level Japan's war, right? A Japanese company war. So uh, then you got a good calibration in terms how much U.S. manufacturing, <laughs> how much Japanese manufacturing. So that was in my head. Actually, I had a good weighting factors to see him. What's going on here between these two countries, right? That was the time. So when I came back and said, oh, there's something we have to do differently. So I start uh, involved a lot of other things. Then 98, uh, uh, 1998, I had the opportunity to work for United Technology because UTC came to see me, say, Jay, 
you should really uh, uh, apply what you know to the real companies. So they brought me to work as a director for product development manufacturing department for UTRC, United Technology Research Center in East Hartford. Obviously, UTC business, including Pratt Winnie jet engines, Sikorsky helicopters, Otis elevator, carrier air conditioning systems, Hamilton Sunstrom, etc. So all the products and the worldwide, but the problem is you want to support global operations. You really need not just a knowledge, what you do, you know, but also the physical usage, what you, you don't know, right? So you know and you don't know. So how much you don't know about the product usage? That's how the data is supposed to be coming back. Unfortunately, back in 1998, 1999, uh, I have to tell you, uh, uh, unfortunately, most of the product data never come back. <laughs> By the time you got back, it's more like a repair overhaul record after a year, two years later, right? So that's not good. So if you, uh, I, in Japan, I was uh, experimenting the first remote machine monitoring system using in- internet, actually, in 1995. So I published a paper in 1998 about uh, how to remotely using physical machine and cyber machine together. That in fact, I wouldn't say that's the first cyber digital twin, but there's a cyber physical model together. That was uh, my paper in 1998 in Journal of Machine Tools Manufacturing. So in fact, you were a precursor in so many of these fields. And it just strikes me that, you know, as you're going through your career here, there are certain pieces that you seem to have learned all along the way, because when you are a career changer, you know, oscillating between public, private, semi-private, you know, research, business, you uh, obviously run the risk of being a dilettante in every field, but you seem to have picked up just enough to get on top of the next job with some insight that others didn't have. And then when you feel like you're frustrated in that current role, you jump back or somewhere else to learn something new. And it's fascinating to me because, you know, obviously your story is, is longer than this. You have startup companies, you know, with your students and, and others uh, in this uh, business. And then, of course, now with the World Economic Forum Lighthouse Factories and the work you've been doing for, for Foxconn as well. So I'm just curious. And then obviously we'll get to industrial AI, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is so interesting in your perspective here, because it's not just the technology of it, right? It is the industrial practice of this new domain that you have this very unique practical experience of how a new technology needs to work. So, well, well, you tell me, how did you get to industrial AI? Because, you know, you, you got there to, you know, the, over the last 15, 20 years, you integrated all of this in a new academic perspective. Well, that's where we start, right? So like I said earlier, when I realized the industry, we did not have a data back in late 1990s, right? In 1999, dot-com collect, remember? Yes, yes. Yeah, so uh, all the companies trying to say, oh, we are e-business, e-business, e-commerce, e-commerce. Then year 2000 collect, right? But the reality is that people talking about e-business, but in the real world, in industrial setting, there's no data, almost, right? So I I was thinking, I mean, there's a time I need to think about how to uh, look at data-centric perspectives, how to develop such a platform and uh, also analytics to support uh, if one day data comes uh, with a you know, the worry-free kind of environment. So so that's why I became, I decided to transition to an academic career in year 2000. So when I started thinking in the, the beginning, we said, well, where has the most data? As we all know, the product lifecycle usage is out there. You have lots of data, but we're not collecting them. So eventually I, kept, I called the center intelligent maintenance 
system called IMS, right? Not intelligent manufacturing system because maintenance has a lots of usage data, which most developer of a product don't know. But if we have a way to collect this data, to analyze, predict, then we can guarantee the product uptime or the value creation. Then the customer will gain most of the value back, right? Then we can use the data feedback to close loop design. That was the original thinking back in year 2000, which at that time, no cell phone could connect to internet. Of course, nobody believed you, right? So we use a term called near zero downtime, near zero downtime, ZDT. Nobody believed us. Intel was my first founding member. So I made a preach to FANUC 2001. Of course, they did not believe it either. All right. Of course, FANUC 2014, they adopt ZDT. Yeah. <laughs> this ZDT is a product name, but I was a joke when I talked to the chairman of CEO of a company in 2018 uh, in Japan and, uh, you know, the uh, Inaba-san. I said, do you know, first we present this uh, ZDT to your company in, 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 you know, in Michigan. They didn't believe it. Now you guys adopt it. Oh, I'm, I'm, I didn't know you use it. So when he came to visit the, me in 2019, they brought the, the gift. <laughs> so anyway, so what happened is during the year like that, so we work with a starting uh, six company, 20 companies, and uh, eventually become over 100 companies. And uh, 2005, 2005, I uh, work uh, with uh, Pratt & Gamble and G Aircraft Engine. Now later on became G Aviation. Then all the data-rich environment, right? So machine learning become a typical thing you use every day, every program. But we don't really emphasize AI at that time. The reason is machine learning is just a tool. It's an algorithm, like a support vector machine, self-organized map, and you know, just a regression. All those are just a supervised learning or non-supervised learning techniques. And people use it. We use it like a standard work every day. But we don't talk about AI, right? So, but over the years, when you work with so many companies, then realize the biggest turning point was Toyota 2005 and PNG 2006. The reason I'm telling you, 2005, Toyota had a big problems in the factory in Georgetown, Kentucky, where the Camry factories is located. So they had a big compressor problems. So we implement a, a uh, using the machine learning, the support vector machine, and also principal component analysis. And we, we enable that the search of a compressor predicted then the, the avoid and never happen. And so and until today. So they have achieved zero downtime after that project. Yeah. So that really is the turning point. Of course, the PNG, the diaper line continues moving the, it's a high volume. But if you can predict things, reduce downtime by 1%, that's a lot of money. Diaper business at that time is like a $10 billion per year. It's so interesting you focus on downtime, Jay, because obviously in this uh, hype, which we'll get to as well, people seem to focus so much on fully automated versus what you're saying, which is it doesn't really, you know, we'll get to the automation part, but it is the downtime, you know, that's where a lot of the savings is obviously, because, you know, whether it's a lights out or, or lights on or, you know, humans or not, the real saving here and the real accomplishment is in zero downtime because that is the industrialization factor. And that is what allows the system to keep operating. Of course, it has to do with automation, and you, you but uh, it's not just that. Can you then walk us through what then became industrial AI for you? Because as I've now understood it, it is a highly specific term to you. It's not just some sort of fluffy idea of very, very advanced algorithms and robots running crazy around uh, autonomously. 
you have very, very specific system elements and they kind of have to work together in some architectural way before you're sort of willing to call it an industrial AI because it may be a machine tool here and a machine tool there and some data here. But for you, unless it, it's put in place in a working architecture, you're not willing to call it, I mean, it may be an AI, but it is not an industrial AI. So how did this thinking then evolve for you? And, and what are the elements that you think are crucial for something that you even can start to call an industrial AI, which you now have a book on, so you're the authority on the subject? Well, I think the real motivation was after you apply all the machine learning toolkits so long, right? And uh, a company like National Instruments, NI, right, in Austin, Texas, they licensed our machine learning toolkits in 2015. And eventually 2017, they start using the embedded into LabVIEW version. So we start realizing actually the toolkit is very important, not just from the laboratory point of view, but also from the production and practitioner's point of view from industry, right? Of course, research use all the time for homework. I mean, that's fine. So eventually we said, well, how could the question came to me about 2016 in one of our industrial advisory board meeting? Industry always, well, you have so many successes, but the successes happen. Can you repeat? Can you repeat? Right. Can you repeatable have same success in many, many other sites, scalable, yeah. repeatable, scalable, sustainable. That's three key words, right? You cannot just have a one-time success and, uh, and then just uh, congratulate yourself and forget it. No. So eventually we say, well, to make it, uh, that repeat, sustainable, repeatable, you have to have a systematic discipline. I'm so glad you say this because, you know, I have taken part in a bunch of uh, kind of best practice schemes and sometimes very optimistically by an, either an industry association or even a government entity. And they say, oh, yeah, let's just all go on a bunch of factory visits. Or if it's just an IT system, let's just all write down what we did and then share it with other people. But in fact, it doesn't seem to me like it is that easy. It's not like if I just explain what I think I have learned that's not something others can learn from. Can you explain to me what it really takes to make something replicable? Because you have done that or helped Foxconn do that, for example, right? And now you're obviously writing up case studies that are now shared in the World Economic Forum, you know, across companies. But there's something really granular, but also something very systemic and structured about the way things have to be explained in order to actually make it repeatable. What is the sustainability factor that actually is possible to not just blue copy, but turn it into something in your own factory? Well, I think that there are basically uh, there are several things, right? The data is one thing we call the data technology, DT, and which means data quality evaluation. How do you uh, understand uh, what to use, what not to use? How do you know which data are useful? And how do you know whether data is usable? It doesn't mean useful data is usable, just like a uh, you have a blood donation donor, but you the blood may not be usable if the donor has HIV. Like to use analogy like food. You got a fish in your hand. Wow, great. But you have asked, where the fish come from? <laughs> if it come from polluted water, not edible, right? So great fish, but not edible. So there's a data layer which has to be usable and it has to be put somewhere and put to use. It actually then has to be used. It can't just be theoretically usable. So we have a lot of useful data. People collect it like a treasure. Problem is that people don't, never realize it. Lots of them, they are not usable because of lack of a label. They have no background and uh, they are not normalized and that's no, I know. So, so eventually 
that is a problem. And even you have lots of data, it doesn't mean it's usable, right? That's what. So then I guess that's how you get to your second layer, which I guess most people just call machine learning. But for you, it's an algorithmic layer, which is where some of the some of the structuring gets done and some of the, the machines that put an analysis on, on this, put in place automatic procedures. Machine learning to me is like a cooking wheel, like a kitchen. Uh-huh. You got a pan fried, you got a steamer, you got the, you know, all the grill. Those are tools to cook the food, the data, food like data, cooking wheel like AI, right? So, but depend on purpose, depend on, for example, you want a fish. What, what do you want to eat first? I want a soup. Well, you have to put that's a different. You want a grill, right? You want to just a, uh, deep fry. So depend on how you want to eat it. The cooking wheel will be select differently. Well, well, and that's super interesting because, you know, it's so easy to sort of say, well, all these algorithms and stuff, they're out there and you, all you have to do is, you know, pick up some algorithms. But you're saying, especially in, in a factory, you, you can't just pick any tool, right? You, you have to really know what the effect would be if you start to, for example, on downtime, right? Because I'm imagining there are very many advanced techniques. They could be super advanced, but they are perhaps not the right tool for the job. For the, for the workers that are there. So how does that co- kind of come into play? Are these sequential steps, by the way? So once you figure out what the data is, then you know you start to fiddle with your tools. Well, well there are two, two perspectives. One perspective is a predict and prevent. Right. Right? So you predict something going to happen, you prevent from happening, then number, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, understand the uh, root causes and potential root causes. So that comes down to the visible and invisible perspective. So from the visible world, we know what to measure. For example, if you know have high blood pressure, you just measure blood pressure every day. But that may not be the reason for high blood pressure. Maybe because your DNA, because you're the food you eat, because you lack of exercise, because many other things, right? Right. So you keep measuring blood pressure, doesn't mean you have no heart attack. <laughs> okay, so if you don't understand the reason, the measured blood pressure is not a problem. So that's what I'm saying. The, you know what you don't know. So we need to find out what you don't know things. So the correlation of the invisible, I call. Mm-hmm. Visible, invisible. So even you want to predict, but you also want to know the invisible reason, relationship, so you can prevent that relationship happen. Mm-hmm. So that is really called the deep mining, those invisibles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we position ourselves very clearly between visible, invisible. A lot of people, they just, oh, we know what the problem. The problem is not a purpose. For example, the factory manufacturing, there's there several very strong purposes. Number one, quality, right? Worry-free quality. Number two, your efficiency, how much you produce per dollar, right? right? If you say you have a great quality, but I spend $10,000 to make it, oh, that's very expensive. But I spend $2 to make it, wow, that's a great. How do you do it? So quality per dollar, it's a very different way of judge how good you are, okay? Like you got an A, I spent a five-day study. I got an A, I spent two-hour study. Now you show the capability difference. I agree. So, and then the, the third factor in your framework seems to be platform. And that's when I think a lot of companies go wrong as well because platform is, at least historically in manufacturing, you pick someone else's platform, right? You say, I'm going to implement something. You know, what's available on the market? And what can I afford, obviously, uh, or ideally, what's the state of the art? And I'll just do that because everyone seems to be doing that. What, what does platform mean to you? And, and how did, what goes into this choice? If you're going to create this platform for industrial AI, what, what kind of a decision is that? 
so, uh, so DT data, AT is algorithm, and PT is a platform. Okay, PT platform. Platform means some common things they are used, okay, uh, in shared community. Mm -hmm. For example, kitchen is a platform. Okay, and you can cook, I can cook, I can cook Chinese food, I can cook Italian food, I can cook, uh, you know, Indian food, same kitchen, but different recipe. Correct. Different seasoning, but same cooking ware. Well, because you have a good kitchen, right? So that's, that's, yes. <laughs> right? But, not, but on the platform, then you have, a, you have most frequent user tool. Right. Not everything. You don't need a hundred cooking ware in your kitchen. You probably have a 10 or even five most frequent daily use. Right, right. Regardless how many different cuisines exactly. you try to cook. That's called an AI machine tool kit. So, so we often work with companies that you don't need a lot of tools. Come on. You don't need deep learning. You need a good logistic regression support with the machine. You're done. Right? Got it. Yeah, you don't need a big uh, in the chainsaw to cut a small bushes. You know? You don't need it. Right. And, and that's a very different perspective from... Uh, I guess from the IT world, where many times you kind of want the biggest, uh, the biggest tool possible because you want to churn a, a lot of data fast and you, you don't really know what you're looking for sometimes. So I guess the industrial context here really constrains you. It's a constraint based environment. Yes. So industry, like I said, we, we, uh, the industry, we talk about three P, right? Like I said, problems, purposes, and processes. So normally problem comes from the many things, logistic problems and machine factory problems in the workforce problems and the quality problems, energy problem, emission problem, accident, safety problem. So the problem happen every day. That's why in factory world, we call firefighting. That typically it's hard, okay? You firefight every day. Right. And is that your metaphor for the last part of your framework, which is actually operation? So operation sounds really nice and structured, right? As <laughs> yes, if that was yeah. like, oh, yeah, that's the real thing, right? Process. We got this. But in reality, it feels sometimes to many who, who are in operating a factory, it's a firefight. Yeah. But, but sometimes, sometimes the, the reason lean thing work, right? Six Sigmas, you turn a problem into a process. Five S is process. Okay. And the uh, fishbone diagram, Pareto chart, and uh, Gaizan before and after. So all the process, SOP. So it doesn't matter which year uh, and the uh, workforce comes in, they just repeat, 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 right? So in Toyota term used to be called manufacturing. It's just about the discipline. It's what I said. The Japanese industry, manufacturing is about discipline. I, how you follow the discipline, do every day, standard way, sustainable way, consistent way. Then you make good products, right? This is how the old Toyota was talking about, old one. But today, they don't talk that anymore, right? Training discipline is only one thing, right? You need to understand the value of the customers. Right. So there are some new things that have to be added to the lean practices, right? As, yes. as time goes by. And so, so talk to me then more about the digital element, because industrial AI to you, clearly, you know, there's a very clear digital element, but there's so many, many other things there. So if we're, I'm trying to summarize your, your framework, you have these four factors, data, algorithms, platforms, and operations. These sort of four aspects of a system that is the challenge you are dealing with in any factory environment. And some of them have to do with digital these days, and others, I guess, really have to do more with people. So when that all comes together, do you have some examples? I don't know. Uh, we talked about 
Toyota, but I know you've worked with, you know, Foxconn and Komatsu or Siemens. Can you give me an example of how this framework of yours now becomes applied in, in a context? Where, 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 do you, where do people pick up these different elements and, and how do they use them? It's a matrix thinking, right? So horizontal thinking is a common um, thing you need to have. So digital threat, right? Including DT, data technology, AT algorithms or analytics, PT platform, edge cloud, and, uh, you know, the things and OT operations, like scheduling, optimizations, you know, stuff like that. Now you got a verticals, quality vertical, cost vertical, efficiency verticals, safety verticals, emission verticals. So you cannot just talk about general. You gotta have a focus on verticals, right? For example, let me give one example of quality verticals. Quality is, I'm a factory manager. I care about quality. Yes, but customers even, even care more. So, so they care, but you have a customer come to your shop once a month to check. You ask them why you come. Oh, I need to see how good your production. How about you don't have to come. You can see my entire quality. Why? Wow, how do I do that? So eventually we develop a stream of quality called SOQ. Stream of quality. So it's not just about one, the product good. I can go back to connect all the processes of a quality segment of each station, connect them together. Just like you got your, you got a fish. Oh, okay. The fish is great, but I want to wonder when the fish came from the, came out of water, when the fish was the, in the truck, how long it would deliver on the road and how long was it reached my, you know, my, my physical distribution center and to my home, right? So if I have a sensor, I can tell you all the temperature history inside the box. So when you got your fish, you tap it. Oh, from the moment the, the fish came out of the boat until reach my home, the temperature remained almost constant. Wow. Now you have worry-free, right? That's what I'm saying. So you, you connect together. So that's why we call SOQ, stream of quality, like a river connected. So by the time customer get a quality product, they can trace back and say, wow, good. How about if I let you see it before you come? If, how about you don't come? I say, oh, you know what? I like it. That's what the cyber manufacturing is about. Not just make you happy. You have to make customer happy, worry-free, right? In the new book from Wiley, Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operations, serial startup founder Dr. Natan Linder and futurist podcaster Dr. Trond Arne Entheim deliver an urgent and incisive exploration of when, how, and why to augment your workforce with technology and how to do it in a way that scales, maintains innovation, and allows the organization to thrive. The key thing is to prioritize humans over machines. Here's what Klaus Schwab, executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, says about the book. Augmented Lean is an important puzzle piece in the fourth industrial revolution. Find out more on www.augmentedlean.com and pick up the book in a bookstore near you. So, Jay, you, you took the words out of my mouth because I wanted to talk about the future. I'm imagining when you say worry-free, I mean... You're talking about a soon-to-be state of manufacturing, or are you literally saying there are some factories, some of the excellence factories where you've won awards, uh, you know, in the World Economic Forum or other places that are already towards, they are working towards this worry-free manufacturing. To some extent, they have achieved it. But, well, elaborate for me a little bit about the future outlook of manufacturing and uh, 
especially this people issue, because you know that I'm engaged. The podcast is called Augmented Podcast. I'm engaged in, in this debate about automation. Well, is there a discrepancy between automation and augmentation? And, you know, to what extent is this about people running the system? Or is it the machines that we should optimize to run all the system? For you, it's all about worry-free. First of all, just answer this question. Is worry-free a future ideal or is it actually here today if you just do the right things? Well, first of all, worry-free is the our mindset where the level of the satisfaction should be, right? Yeah. So we to, to make manufacturing happen, it's not about how to make a good quality, how to make people right physically have less worry how to make customers less worry is what it is but you the reason we have a problem with workforce today i mean we have a hard time to hire highly not just highly skilled worker even the stand regular work workforce okay because the, for some reason not just us seems everywhere not right now has that similar problems people have a more option now these days select other living means they could be an Uber driver. <laughs> they could be other. <laughs> so there are many options. You don't have to just go to the factory to make earning, right? They can, they like to have a car, drive around Uber, Lyft or whatever. They can deliver the food and the, you know, whatever. So they can do the uh, many other things. And so today you want to make a workforce, uh, work environment more attractive. You have to make sure that they understand, oh, this is something they can learn. They can grow, they fulfill because they, the environment gives them a lot of uh, empowerment. It's the vibe, the vibe of the environment uh, give them a wow, right? Especially young people, when you attract them from college, they like a wow kind of environment, not just a woo, okay? Yeah. Well, it's interesting you're saying this. I mean, we actually have a lack of workers, right? So it's not just, uh, you know, we want to make factories full of machines. It's actually the machines are actually needed just because there are no workers to fill these jobs. But but you, you're looking into a future where you, you do think that manufacturing is and will be an attractive place going forward. That's a seems to be that you, you have a positive vision of of the future we're going into. You think this is attractive it's it's interesting for workers yeah see i i often say that there are some common horizontal we have to use all the day uh, vertical is the purpose quality i uh, talk about vertical quality first right quality but what are the horizontal common i call a b c d e f right what's a ai b is big data c is cyber and cloud d is a digital or digital twin whatever E, right, is environment, ecosystem, right, and the emission reduction. What's F? Very important. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. You, if you miss that piece, who want to work for a place that has no fun? You tell me. Well, you work for something. You, you like you, you and I, we're talking now because it's fun. You talk to people and different perspectives. I talk to you. I said, wow. I mean, you, 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 you build some, uh, you know, humongous network here and uh, physically look the future digital not just professional space, but also social space, but also the uh, in the physical space. So, I mean, again, the fun things inspire people, right? They do. So talking about inspiring people then, Jay, if you were to paint a picture of this future, I guess, you know, we have talked now, just just now uh, about workers and how it's, it, it is, if you do it right, going to be really attractive workplaces in manufacturing how about for i guess one type of worker you know these uh knowledge workers more generally or 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 in fact 
is there a possibility that you see that not just is it going to be a fun place to be for uh, for for great many workers, but it's actually going to be an exciting knowledge workplace again, which you know arguably you know yes. industrialization has gone through many stages, and you know being in a factory wasn't always all that rosy, but it was certainly financially re rewarding for many, and it has had a, an enormous career progression for, for others who were able to find ways to exploit this system to their benefit. How do you see that going forward? Is there a scope? Is there a world in which factory work can again, or perhaps in an even new way, become truly knowledge work? Where all of these industrial AI factors, the A to the E uh, to the Fs, produce fun, but they produce lasting progression and career satisfaction, empowerment, all these buzzwords that everybody in the workplace wants and perhaps deserves. Yeah, that's how we uh, we look at the future workforce. It's not just about the work, but also the knowledge force, right? So basically, the difference is that people come in and uh, they cease, become seasoned engineers, experienced engineers, and retire. And the wisdom carry with them. Sometimes you have documentation, Excel sheet, PPT in the data for in the server, but nobody even look at it, right? That's what today's world is. So now, what you want is a living, living knowledge, living intelligence. The ownership is important. For example, I'm a worker. I develop AIs, not just the computer software to help the machine, also help me. I can augment the intelligence. What augment it? When, when I make a product happen, the machine, the, well, the inspection station, they check, not, not just tell me pass or no pass. They also tell me the quality 98, 97, but they pass. Like uh, your score, your 70 got, you, you got a 70, 80, 90, but you got an A, but A, but 99, you got A, 91, you got A too. So what exactly A mean, right? So therefore, I give you a reason. Oh, this is something. Then I learn. Even then, I say, okay, I can contribute. Well, I can make, I can use a voice. I can use my opinion to augment that note labeled. So next time people work, oh, I got 97. And uh, then I say, oh, the reason is the feature need to be maintained, to be changed. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, uh, the system need to be whatever. So eventually, you have a human contribute. The whole process could be consist of a five experts, seven, 10, 20, eventually owned by 20 people. That legacy continue, right? And you as a worker, you feel like you are part of that team. Left, leave a legacy for next generation, right? So, so eventually it's augment intelligence. The third thing, level will be actual implementation. So AI is not about artificial intelligence. It's about actual implementation. So people physically can implement things right in a, in a way can they make data to decisions so their decision mean I, I want to make adjustment i want to find out how much i should adjust physically i can see the gap i can input the adjustment level the system will tell me physically how good it improved five percent wow that's good i made a five percent improvements your boss also know and your paycheck got the 150 dollar increase this month why because my contribution to the process quality improved. So I got the bonus. That's a real, real world feedback. Let me ask you one last question about how this is going to play out. Uh, I mean, in terms of uh, how the res how the skilling of, of workers is going to allow this kind of process. A lot of people are telling me, uh, you know, about the ambitions that I'm describing uh, and, and some of the guests on the podcasts, uh, you know, and also the Tulip software the platform that owner of this podcast has that is sometimes optimistic to 
think that a lot of the training can just be embedded in the work process. That is obviously an ideal, but you know, in America, for example, there is this idea that, well, you know, you are, you are either a trained worker or, you know, or an educated worker or you are an uneducated worker. And then, yes, you can learn some things on the job, but there's limits to how much you can learn directly on the job. You have to be pulled out and you have to do training and, and get, get competencies. As you're looking into the future, are there these two tracks? So you either, you know, get yourself a short or long college degree and then you move in and then you move faster or you are in the factory and then you know if you then start to want to learn things you have to pull yourself out and take courses 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 and then go in or is it possible through these ai enabled training systems to get so much real-time feedback that a reasonably intelligent person actually never has to be pulled out of work and actually they can learn on the job truly advanced things so, because there are two really, really different futures here. One, you have to scale up an educational system. And two, you have to scale up more of a real-time learning system. And it seems to me that they're actually discrepant paths. Sure. To us, right, there, to me, there are we have a framework. I have a framework in my book, industry. I call it a 4P mm-hmm. structure for P, right? First P is a principle-based. For example, in the, in Six Sigma and the, in the Lean Manufacturing, there's some basic stuff you have to study, right? Basic stuff. Right. Like a very simple fishbone diagram, periodical. You have to understand those things. You can learn by yourself what that is. It can take a very basic introduction course. Right. So we can learn, give you a module, you can learn yourself or by group. Principle based. Uh, the second thing, practice based. Basically, we will prepare data for you. We will teach you how to use a tool and you will do it together as a team or as an individual and you present results. But use the data I give to you, the tool I give to you, right? So practice. So, oh, yeah, I, my team A presented. Oh, this looks interesting. Present B and the group B presented. So we learn from each other. Then after the, a, a group learning finished, you go back to your team in the real work. You create a project called project-based learning. You take you 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 take the tool you learn and take the knowledge you learn and to find a project like a Six Sigma project something you do it by yourself, right? You formulate. You come back to the class maybe a few weeks later, present with a real world project based on the boss approval, right? So after that, you got maybe a black belt. But with the last piece of professional, then you start teaching other people to repeat the first three piece. You become master black belt, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, we're not re- reinventing a new term, but really it's about a similar concept like lean, but more digital space. Lean is about personal experience. Right. And digital is about the data experience. That's what big difference. Mm-hmm. But either way, right, it is a big difference whether you have to rely on technological experts or you can do a lot of these things through training and can get to a level of aptitude that you can read the signals, at least from the system and implement small changes, perhaps not the big changes, but you can at least read the system. And, you know, whether they're low code or no code, you can at least then through learning frameworks, you can advance and you can improve in not just your own workday, but you can probably, you know, in groups and feedbacks and stuff, you can bring the whole team and the factory forward, perhaps without relying only on these, you know, external types of expertise that are actually so costly, right? Because they take you away. So per definition, you you run into this. I mean, certainly isn't worry-free because uh, there is an interruption. Yes. You know, in the process. 
Well, look, this is fascinating. Any any la uh, last thought? It seems to me that you know there are so many more ways we can dig deeper on your experience. Uh, you know, in any of these industrial contexts, or even going deeper in each of the frameworks. Is there a short way to kind of encapsulate industrial AI that you can leave us with, just so so people can really understand? Sure. It's such a fundamental thing you know, AI, and people have different ideas about that, and industry, people have something in their head. Now, you have combined them in a unique way. Just give us a one sentence. What is industrial AI? What should people leave this podcast with? AI is a cognitive science, but industrial AI is a systematic discipline. It's a one sentence. So that means you have, people have domain knowledge. Now we have to create data to represent our domain, then have a discipline to solve the domain problems. Usually we do it domain knowledge. We try our experience, solve, and only you and I know. That's it. But we have no data coming out. But if I have a domain become a data, the data become discipline, then other people can repeat our success. Even our mistake, they understand why. So eventually domain, data, discipline, 3D together, you can make a good decision, sustainable and long lasting. Jay, this has been so instructive. I, I thank you for spending this time with me. And, uh, it, you know, it's a little bit of a never ending process. So, like, in industry <laughs> is not something that you can, you can get, learn it. And it, because also the, the domain changes and, and what you're doing and what you're producing changes as well. So it, it's a lifelong it's rewarding. rewarding, but lifelong quest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share, to discuss. Thank you. It is a great pleasure. You have just listened to another episode of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim. The topic was Industrial AI, and our guest was Professor Jay Lee from the University of Cincinnati. In this conversation, we talked about how AI in industry needs to work every time and what that means. My takeaway is that industrial AI is a breakthrough that will take a while to mature. It implies discipline, not just algorithms. In fact, it entails a systems architecture consisting of data, algorithm, platform and operation thanks for listening if you liked the show subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars if you liked this episode you might also like episode 81 from predictive to diagnostic manufacturing augmentation hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes and if so do let us know by messaging us we would love to share your thoughts with other listeners the Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, the frontline operation platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and is empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hired. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially where industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.